Hello, this is Matt Parton. I'm here to talk about the Marine Lab Handbook. So here's the cover for our Marine Lab Handbook. So the BGSU Marine Laboratory is a 1,500 square foot facility which, facility which contains over 4,000 gallons of seawater and over 60 aquaria. Some of the larger systems include a 500 gallon touch tank, 1,000 gallon shark system, and two coral research systems totaling 1,000 gallons. In the lab, eight major phyla are represented in over 66 genre of marine life, including sea anemones, corals, starfish, sea urchins, snails, crabs, octopus, and algae, as well as a wide variety of fresh and marine fish. Outreach is a large part of the marine biology program at BGSU. The animals in the marine lab are maintained by students for class study and research projects, but are also present for the appreciation of 2,000 visitors each year. The marine lab is free to visit, open to the public, and it hosts local school groups every Thursday morning during the academic year. Undergraduate research is another focus of the marine biology program at BGSU. The BGSU Aquatic Research Laboratory, or ARL, is a 1,450-square-foot facility facility dedicated to fresh and saltwater aquatic research for undergraduates. The ARL was recently built in response to BGSU's strong support of undergraduate research and the prodigious growth of the marine biology program. The ARL is strictly for undergraduates and it's not open to the public. Students interested in aquatic or marine biology are encouraged to become involved right away and maintain an aquarium in the marine laboratory either as a volunteer or for credit by enrolling in aquarium husbandry, which is biology for 4520. The students are then required to take the closed systems course, which is biology 3700, to integrate the theory of animal management with marine research. Once this has been completed, students are able to register for independent study in coral aquariums or research, breeding techniques, uh, or shark biology or whatever other projects are interesting to them. The BGSU Marine Biology Laboratory is located in room 209 of the Life Sciences Building and is open to anyone wishing to view the animals or talk with students in the lab. The lab is open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on weekdays. Uh, during the weekends, it's, it's open when enraged in advance. Uh, with either the opening coordinator or the outreach coordinator. Large groups are welcome, but are requested to call in advance in order to make arrangements with the outreach coordinator to receive a tour of the laboratory. In the marine lab, eight major phyla are represented in over 66 genre of marine life. Many of the animals in the lab are purchased from breeders or donated from zoos, while others are collected and brought back to BGSU by students to participate in field trips. The animals in the lab are maintained by students mainly for class study and research projects, but are also for the appreciation of visitors and fellow students. Additional experience may be gained through field study during the summer at Gulf Coast Research Laboratory at University of Southern Mississippi, um, or GCRL, which is affiliated with BGSU, so credits earned are BGSU credits. They're not transfer credits. We have a consortium agreement with the University of Southern Mississippi. Additional field experiences are available at other coastal laboratories, so you can gain that type of 
course experience at facilities all over the world. Many of our students choose Gulf Coast Research Laboratory because of that consortium agreement. BGSU Marine Laboratory History. The lab was established in 1963 when BGSU professor Cynthia Stong and two students, Steve Toth and John Young, set up five 10-gallon tanks to house animals brought back from a spring field trip to the uh, spring field trip to the Gulf Coast. Subsequently, the program has grown to over 40 tanks that include 700-gallon shark tank and a 10-foot touch tank. Many of the students who have graduated with the Marine and Aquatic Sciences Specialization have acquired marine-related positions. Some of these positions include academic positions at marine institutions and universities, government positions in fishery biology, private industry, and environmental firms, aquarist positions at various well-known aquariums, marine mammal observers, and aquarists at SeaWorld. Many of our alumni have gone on to graduate school at some of the most prestigious oceanographic and marine biology institutions in the world. Safety precautions. The marine laboratory has many safety concerns. Being informed about the organisms as well as the equipment you may come into contact with in the lab is a good prevention of hazardous situations. Animals. Very few animals in the lab are potentially harmful. Be cautious when feeding eels as well as other fish with large jaws and razor-sharp teeth, such as gars and sharks. Be aware of venomous fish. Now, the only we do have a couple venomous fish, lionfish, and we usually keep lionfish as well as uh, some rabbit fish, uh, but we try to avoid venomous fish. Glass. When glass is broken in the lab, be sure to dispose of it in the broken glass bucket located under the table in the front of uh, of the blackboard. If you break a mercury thermometer, notify a coordinator immediately. Do not place the shards in the broken glass bucket. Rather, put them in a plastic bag. We have a very large sharps container. It's, it's a big blue box, or you'll uh, it's a blue and white box, or there's the, the green bucket. Um, notify a lab coordinator so they can help you with that, or myself. Let, let me know. I'll I can help you. And don't be afraid, I mean, uh, of, of telling somebody accidents happen. It's, 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 uh, we're not going to send you a bill for a broken aquarium. Uh, just let us know so we can make sure that it's cleaned up properly. That way when the janitors come to take out the trash, they don't cut themselves on broken glass or anybody else in the lab gets cut with broken glass. Electricity. Make sure all electrical cords running from your tank are in a drip loop. If you don't know what a drip loop is, ask one of the coordinators. All power strips are to be elevated on cylinder blocks. You shouldn't have a power strip sitting on a table anywhere. Because if water pools on the table, your power strip is now sitting in a puddle of water. So do not allow the power strip, any power strips in the lab to be sitting on a flat surface um, like a table. Never allow your heater to be exposed to the air while hot. If it is, it will shatter. So this happens when people are doing water changes, maybe drain their tank down a little bit, heater's exposed, it'll crack, they don't realize it, they fill the tank back up, and now you have a current in your tank. Um, so be very aware that uh, if, if, if your heater is going to be exposed to the air for any reason, whether you take it out of the aquarium or you lower the water in your aquarium, that you unplug it, turn it off, let it cool before you expose it to air. Water on the floor. 
Always mop water from the floor. Mops are located next to the refrigerator. Use a wet floor sign whenever necessary. Non-slip closed-toed shoes are recommended when working in the lab to prevent slipping. No open-toed shoes in the laboratory to prevent injury. Don't wear flip-flops. Um, I used to uh, when I first started here long ago, and it's like ice. It is it it's so slippery. Um, so don't come in. You know, in the summer it's usually not a problem. In the winter, but in the summer people will want to come in with sandals or even like those cheap flip flops. Don't do it. It's dangerous and it's uh, uh, it's not worth it. So please, or, you know, at least some people actually will keep a second pair of shoes in the lab. So when they're working in the lab, you know, they can wear their flip-flops or their sandals all day, but when they're in the lab, they'll put on their shoes. Uh, you can either put those in your, keep carrying them around with you in a bag, or there are drawers in the lab you can store them. So if you have questions about that, let me know, but don't wear open-toed shoes in the lab. General rules. This is a working lab. Water does get spilled and glass is occasionally broken. Because of this, closed-toed shoes must be worn in the lab at all times. Because water is consistently spilled on the floor, there's no running allowed in the lab at any time. I mean, common sense. Please cooperate and be respectful of all the coordinators. If there's any problems in the lab, contact the head coordinator or myself. Um, if uh, there's disputes between people, which sometimes there are, there's you know a lot of people sharing the space. So if there's some dispute, let me know. I know sometimes people will try to undermine each other or they'll even try to sabotage each other's tanks. That's actually happened. Um, let me know or the head coordinator and, and we can try to diffuse any situations. We want you to have a friendly, relaxed, and informational atmosphere. Since there are other classes on the floor, please keep loud noises to a minimum, i.e. no screaming, loud music, definitely swear words echoing down the hallway is something that we do not want to happen in the marine lab, which has happened in the marine lab. No food or drink in the lab, okay? Uh, that is an environmental health and safety hazard. So please, uh, no food or drink in the lab. No equipment, supplies, books, etc. are to be taken from the lab without the lab director's permission and written documentation of what was borrowed. This is because I have lost so many books and so many things that I've lent out, forgot how I gave it to, or people just took things and didn't tell me. So please, uh, we do not have an unlimited budget in the lab to keep replacing equipment and books. So if you want to borrow something, ask me, uh, not the lab coordinator or any, not the lab coordinators or the head coordinator. Uh, ask me. I want to know if, if, if you're going to be taking anything out of the lab, uh, especially books. I know a lot of people want to borrow books. We have a nice library there. You, you're welcome to use them while in the lab, but if you actually want to take something home, I want you to talk to me personally so I can write that down. Uh, lab equipment, hoses, buckets, pumps, etc. should be returned to the proper places after being rinsed in the sink with tap water. So rinse everything out that you use because we don't want spread diseases around the lab. So if you use a net or whatever, rinse it out. Um, all equipment used for cleaning should be placed in the bleach bucket after being rinsed in the sink with tap water. 
This is to help prevent the spread of diseases from tank to tank. And there's a bleach bucket system, which uh, we'll get into in a different video. Please report broken items to the assistant student coordinators so that it can be repaired or replaced. Broken glass should be placed in the broken glass disposal bucket or box. Chemical spills should be reported to the uh, head coordinator and or myself. And the person that made the spill should help with the proper cleanup. If necessary, there is an emergency eyewash station and first aid kit in the lab. Make sure you know where those are. Please keep lab tables clean. The first table is for studying, homework, and socializing. The testing table is where the chemicals and equipment for the weekly water quality tests are found. Do the tests only at the table at this table to prevent spills into the tank. So uh, don't just stand in front of your tank and do your water quality tests and try not to do it at the big front table where everybody's sitting because you don't want to dump your tests all over people. Ideally, use one of the two testing stations to, to do your water quality tests. The Marine Lab position hierarchy. So we have a department chair who oversees the faculty in the department, and currently that's Dr. Juan Buzat. And overseeing the Marine Lab is myself and Dr. Kevin Nebs. We're both faculty here, and you can you can talk to either one of us. So you can come to me first if you're if you know Kevin or Dr. Nebs better. You, you can talk to him. Below us, we have a head coordinator that we appoint each year usually these the position lasts a year and then under the head coordinator is going to be four other coordinators and that's our leadership team so the the, the four coordinators that help the head coordinator are going to be an outreach coordinator large systems coordinator coral systems coordinator and a research coordinator the outreach coordinator oversees they may have some assistant coordinators underneath them that they oversee. And those may be a tours assistant coordinator, newsletter assistant coordinator, a web page assistant coordinator. The large systems, they're always going to have tables, table one assistant coordinator, table two assistant coordinator, table three assistant coordinator, and a stock room assistant coordinator. Under the coral systems coordinator, we're going to have an opening assistant coordinator bleach testing, vats, cleaning, uh, cleaning slash refrigerator, because that that's part of it, and a closing assistant coordinator. The research coordinator, they're going to oversee anybody taking research, doing research in the lab. So those who have a KERS grant and are doing projects uh, in the receiving funding for the, from the Center for Undergraduate Research scholarship. They're also going to oversee anyone doing a biology 4010, that's independent research, or biology 470, which may be a readings that uh, that has a, a component in, in the marine lab. Or uh, So they're going to oversee all of those projects, as well as this. the research coordinator all, is also responsible for safety. So they may oversee a safety assistant coordinator and an IACUC 
assistant coordinator. The IACUC is the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. And the, so it's, it's up to the research coordinator and if they have an assistant under them to help us make sure that we're in compliance with the uh, IACUC as well as the uh, human or the uh, environmental health and safety. Next, we have underneath those, that's about 16 coordinators or so, we have everybody else. So those are going to be the students in the Biology 3700, Introduction in Land Marine Research. All of those who are taking Biology 4520, which is aquarium husbandry, and any other volunteers working in the lab. The head coordinator position, there's one of those, and their job is to coordinate and facilitate all aspects of the marine lab, including day-to-day -day operations and long-term planning. Head coordinator is responsible for overseeing all other coordinators and lab volunteers. They purchase uh, the purchases and acquisitions are mainly conducted by the head coordinator and approved by the director, but may be delegated if necessary. This position also requires the coordinator to work closely with the director and other faculty for implementing changes to the lab. New ideas, developing an agenda for coordinator meetings, hiring assistant coordinators once at the beginning of the year, selecting the preceding head coordinator, and placing the volunteer coordinators once each semester. The head coordinator is also responsible for serving as the teaching assistant in Introduction to Inland Marine Research, if they're available, that is, in the fall semester. The head coordinator must have all the current and proper training to maintain a science lab, including safe chemical handling training, MS-222 and euthanasia, uh, and euthanasia training, and any other protocols that the lab requires. All right, so the four coordinator positions underneath the head. You have the coordinator of large systems, who is responsible for overseeing the care of all large system aquariums in the marine lab, as well as the assistant coordinators are responsible for the stock room and tables one, two, and three. The large systems in the marine lab range from a 100-gallon eel aquarium to a 700-gallon white-spotted bamboo shark system. The large system coordinator needs to have knowledge of how all the large systems work from the inside out. This includes the different types of filtration and how they work, the mechanics of how the water flows through the system, what the diets are of the different organisms, how to dose aquariums with iodine, sodium bicarbonate, or any other supplement when needed, and how to problem solve when problems arise. The large system coordinator works closely with all of the table coordinators in order to ensure that the students know how to properly take care of their aquariums and to answer any questions that the table coordinators are unaware of. The coordinator of coral systems. This position is responsible for overseeing the care of all coral aquariums in the marine lab, as well as the assistant coordinators responsible for the different lab duties, including opening, closing, vats, cleaning, and sanitation. The coral coordinator needs to have knowledge of how all the coral systems work from the inside out. This includes the different types of filtration and how they work, the mechanics of how the water flows through the system, what the diets are of the different organisms, how to dose aquariums with magnesium, Calquasser, calcium chloride, 
sodium bicarbonate, or any other supplement when needed. Uh, how the previous chemicals affect corals and why they are important and how to problem solve when problems arise, and they always arise in those tanks. The Coral Coordinator works closely with all of the lab duty coordinators in order to ensure that the coral systems are working properly and the lab duties run smoothly. Outreach Coordinator. The outreach coordinator is responsible for all the marine lab outreach, as well as overseeing the assistant outreach coordinators. This includes scheduling, conducting tours of the marine lab, traveling to schools and off-campus locations for educational programming, producing a newsletter each semester, maintaining the marine lab webpage, producing a flyer advertising educational outreach, and assisting with the Biology 3700 and the Biology 1080 learning assistance, if we have any uh, during those semesters. Research coordinator. The research coordinator oversees all research projects in the lab, IACUT compliance, environmental health and safety compliance, and assistant coordinators. The research coordinator communicates the needs of researchers to the head coordinator. They're going to protect the integrity of projects to make sure people don't mess with whatever these researchers have going on in the lab and ensure that the projects are completed in a timely fashion so they can kind of help prod people along if they're lagging in their data collection. Assistant coordinator positions, and there's 14 of those. So these assistant coordinators will report to the leadership team that we just described above. The first three, Table 1, Table 2, and Table 3 coordinator, have all the same description. So they are responsible for overseeing the care of all the aquariums that are on Tables 1, 2, or 3 in the lab, as well as doing weekly tank checks for those aquariums. Table 1, 2, and 3 coordinator helps to instruct students on how to clean their aquariums, how all filters work that are on the aquarium, and what the diets of the animals are and how to feed them properly and how to problem solve in various when various problems arise. Table 1 coordinator works closely with the large systems coordinator and reports any unusual behavior to any problems that are too difficult to handle on their own. So that same description for tables 1 coordinator, 2 coordinator, and table 3 coordinator. The opening food station coordinator. So it's like opening and a food station coordinator is responsible for opening the marine lab in the morning, ensuring that the lab is clean and that all systems are working properly, making sure that all animals are alive, uh, thawing out the appropriate amount of food for the day and cultivating live brine shrimp. Once the marine lab is opened, the opening feeding station coordinator makes their rounds around the lab to ensure that all the systems are properly working and if any problems arise, they should be able to problem solve in order to fix them. If the problem is too large to handle, the, uh, then the opening coordinator needs to work closely with coral and or large systems coordinators to problem solve together and fix the problem that arises. If anything is out of place, the coordinator should put the items away promptly before the day starts. So normally it's like they'll walk in and there might be a flood on the floor and they'll have to mop up a little bit. After the rounds are done, a variety of food should be thawed out with cold water in appropriate dishes that are in the food sink. So 
Typically, two pollock fillets and seven to ten squid bodies should be enough food to last most of the day. The food should then be sorted into the appropriate containers and stored in the refrigerator. The live brine culture is located on the feed station and should be maintained to ensure that the animals in the lab are receiving enough nutrients in order to survive. The opening feeding station coordinator not only works alongside with the coral coordinator, but with fellow students that are assigned opening for their lab duty in order to make sure that the marine lab is ready for the day. So the opening feeding station coordinator may have a team working with them. Now, once you get the hang of this job, you'll be able to just walk in the lab and as soon as and just hear if there's problems. Okay, you'll you'll just open the door and you'll be able to hear this. The marine lab makes a sound, and you'll you'll become accustomed to that sound. And if it's off, you know something's wrong. All right, sanitation testing station coordinator. This person's responsible for maintaining clean bleach buckets, a clean testing station, and making sure that the lab duty is complete. Uh, is com- that uh, that this lab duty is completed every week? Bleach buckets are an important task in maintaining an aquarium. It limits the risk of transferring diseases from one aquarium to another. This lab duty needs to be done at least two to three times a week. After emptying the buckets and rinsing them out, one capful of bleach is added to the buckets and then filled with tap water. The testing table consists of four containers that need bleach water as well. These include two test tube containers test tube caps and pipettes. Since these containers are smaller, they only need a couple drops of bleach. The sanitation coordinator not only works alongside with the coral coordinator, but with the fellow students that are assigned sanitation for their lab duty in order to make sure that the semester is running smoothly. VATS coordinator. This person is responsible for all duties dealing with the various VAT systems that are located in the marine laboratory. This involves thoroughly understanding how the vats work to where it can be simply and accurately explained to fellow students. The filling of the vats, the maintenance of the saltwater vat sump, the aging of the salt and freshwater itself, and maintaining the salinities of the trash can vat systems throughout the lab. The VAT coordinator will either meet with a group of students as a whole or one-on-one and assign each student a designated time to care for and maintain the VATs on their own. The coordinator will oversee these students and make sure that the lab duty is being done promptly and correctly and being available to answer any questions that students may have about maintaining any of the VATs in the lab. The VATs coordinator works closely with the coral coordinator if they have any questions concerning the position and the coral actually everybody depends on the vat coordinators to have water ready for them and it takes a little bit of time to age the seawater so uh, the vat coordinator needs to be on top of their duties how to mix salt water and fresh water when mixing fresh water one open the valve that is connected to the pvc piping at the front base of the freshwater vat. Two, turn on the city water located on the back wall of the rear corner closest to the freshwater vat. Three, 
fill the vat to the fill line, turn off city water, and then close the valve on the PVC piping. Four, be sure to fill out and sign, uh, fill out the sign that is to be placed over the freshwater faucet in in the on the other side of the wall in, in the lab, and mark that the water cannot be used until three days from when you filled the vat, since it takes three days for all of the chlorine to be removed from the water before it is put into aquariums in the marine lab. When mixing salt water, one, open the valve that connects the two saltwater vats and plug in the pump that is inside the mixing saltwater vat so that all the water from the mixing vat can be transferred to the regular saltwater vat. So we have two saltwater vats, one for mixing, and the other one is the, the vat that we're drawing from for the marine lab. Number two, open the valve that is connected to the PVC piping at the front base of the saltwater mixing vat. Number three, turn on the city water located on the back wall in the rear corner closest to the freshwater vat. Four, fill the vat to the fill line and make sure to fill the sump about halfway. Turn off city water and then close the valve on the PVC piping. Number five, put the, a whole box of salt into the sump of the saltwater mixing vat and make sure that the pump in the sump is plugged in. All right, so that's how you mix salt water. All right, cleaning refrigerator coordinator. This person's responsible for keeping the marine laboratory clean and presentable for various tour groups that come through the lab. We have children that come through our lab so it is really important that you keep everything picked up uh, no sharp objects like razor blades laying around or syringes we use those in the lab sometimes those have got to be picked up in order to maintain a clean environment the coordinator is in charge of organizing and orchestrating the cleaning of the lab cleaning duties include sweeping and mopping the floors wiping down all the tables throughout making sure equipment is put away at the end of the day and disinfecting the refrigerator. Cleaning should be done at least two to three times a week and definitely before a tour comes in. The cleaning coordinator not only works alongside the outreach coordinator, but with fellow students that are assigned cleaning for their lab duty in order to make sure that the marine laboratory is in pristine condition for tours and throughout the week. The cleaning coordinator also works closely with the coral coordinator if they have any questions concerning the position. Closing coordinator. This person is responsible for knowing the diets of all animals in the lab, feeding any animals that were not fed at the end of the day, and for closing the lab when finished. The closing coordinator feeds on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and every week uh, for every week in order to make sure that all animals in the marine lab are fed. Feeding is accomplished by checking the dates that are on the whiteboard with the dates that correspond on the clipboard. Actually, instead of a clipboard, we actually use an online reporting system now. If an aquarium has not been fed for the day, it is the closing coordinator's duty to feed that animal. When feeding is completed, the coordinator will walk around the lab in order to make sure that all the systems are working properly and that all the animals are not displayed, displaying any unusual behavior that needs to be monitored. 
The lights in the back room should be turned off and the back room should be locked. Before leaving the lab, the lights of the lab that are on timers should be double-checked to make sure that they have not been tampered with and that the lab should and the, then the, the lab should be locked. The closing coordinator is not only works alongside with the choral coordinator but with fellow students that are assigned closing for their lab duty in order to make sure that all the animals are fed properly. Assistant Outreach Coordinators. These people are responsible for helping set up and running tours, helping at STEM in the Park and SetGo programs and the organization of artifacts in order to grow awareness of the BGSU Marine Laboratory and the different habitats that are represented in the lab as well. As the outreach coordinator, one should have knowledge of all species in the marine lab. This knowledge is needed for performing tours and preparing fellow students to perform tours. The outreach coordinator should have knowledge of all artifacts for the education of both the visitors and other tour volunteers. The artifacts are organized into categories based primarily on phyla, and the coordinator should check periodically to make sure all of the artifacts are accounted for and properly organized. The outreach coordinator not only works closely with the director of the marine lab, but fellow student volunteers to make sure that tours are running smoothly and that the visitors are enjoying their time within the marine lab. Tank checks. Tank checks will be conducted regularly throughout each semester during the academic year. And we will use a rubric that includes, typically includes appearance, filters, records, lab duties, and it may change from semester to semester. But all table coordinators and lab duty coordinators are responsible for giving student grades on how well they take care of their specific aquarium. The table coordinators grade out of 15 or 20 and record the grade into the computer. Once a student completes their lab duty, the lab duty coordinator will record a grade out of five on the computer for each, uh, for, for, for their lab duties if they complete those. If the student completes their lab duty, they will receive a five out of five. However, if the student does not complete their lab duty, they will receive zero out of five until they complete their duty. So we do tank checks and the lab coordinators do that and that eventually goes to me. Marine lab volunteer responsibilities and procedures. As a volunteer in the marine lab, it is important to take your responsibility seriously. Your animals are completely dependent upon you for their care and survival. If for any reason you cannot feed and care for your animals, at any time during the semester, it is of the utmost importance that you inform the coordinator that oversees your particular tank by either calling or emailing them or text. If for some reason you are unable to get a hold of a coordinator, then contact the head coordinator or the lab director. Freshwater procedures. So if you have a freshwater tank, this is what you're going to be doing on a month or daily, weekly, monthly basis. First off, only use freshwater vat water on your tank. Freshwater vat nozzle 
is on the left side located next to the testing uh, testing station. So you'll see two and they're labeled. One says freshwater, one says saltwater. You're obviously going to use the one labeled freshwater. Every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, wash your hands before touching your tank. If you use soap, which most people would, be sure to rinse all soap off thoroughly. If you use hand sanitizer, make sure you rinse that off thoroughly as well. It needs you don't you don't want to get those into the tank. So make sure that they are completely off. Especially if you're wearing a lot of perfume or cologne or something. Get your hands clean or you're coming from chemistry class. Feed animals according to the species that are housed in your tank. So you need to know your animals requirements. Top off your tank with fresh water. So Throughout the week, you will notice that the water level in your tank is going down, down, down because the water is evaporating and you need to add fresh water back to that tank to top. So top off your tank. Rinse everything you put into your tank with tap water before and after use. That way, if there's something on a net or whatever you're sticking into the tank, uh, you rinse that. You get that off of there because you don't want to get extra garbage into your tank. Clean algae off the aquarium glass. Clean outside of the aquarium, including the glass front, uh, the, uh, the, out, the entire outside of the glass. Wipe it down. The top of the aquarium, any surrounding areas. Specific cleaning supplies are located in the back room. If you need help locating those, talk to one of the coordinators. Record feeding and testing information and observations. We used to use a clipboard system. Now it's all done online. And you'll have access to those links in the Canvas course shell. And it's also, if you look on the, the computer in the lab, you can, you can get to it there. So what do you want to record? You want to please report any unusual behavior to a coordinator so that the animal can be monitored or treated immediately if necessary. That's probably going to be one of your first signs of disease is the animal is your animals in your tank or an animal in your tank is not behaving the way they normally do. So report that, even if you don't think it's significant. If you do notice some unusual or different behavior than normal, report that. Uh, finally, before you leave, you're going to need to initial and date by your tank number on the whiteboard on the front door. This is how we know if you came in or not on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then the closing coordinator comes in and see, and they can just very easily look at that whiteboard and see who came in, who didn't, what tanks need to be fed. So please remember to do that. Once a week, test pH, ammonia, nitrite, and nitrate levels. Obtain either a 5 milliliter test tube or vial and corresponding lids from the testing station. Rinse with tap water thoroughly before putting in tank. Actually, the better way to do it is to use a, a cup, remove some water from your tank, and then pour them into the vials. That way you're not dipping the disgusting vials into your aquarium. Fill with tank water until the 5 milliliter mark. Follow instructions for each test uh, that are located on the testing station. Let test test tubes or vials sit for at least five minutes before recording results on the clipboard. Use low range pH tests for fresh water. You're probably going to want high range for salt water. Now the one exception is if you have cichlids, uh, African cichlids, you may have, have uh, 
an aquarium that's being maintained at a higher pH. And so with those, uh, even though they're freshwater, you'd want to use the uh, high range pH test. Ideal levels should be about 7 for most of our freshwater fish, 8.2 for African cichlids and saltwater tanks. But it just depends. There's It, it varies by species, so make sure you know your animal's pH requirements. Ammonia should be 0. Nitrite should be 0. Nitrate ideally would be zero, and many tanks it won't be. And if you just have fish in your system, it's don't be too concerned. You can talk to a lab coordinator if you have really high nitrates. And actually, if you record ammonia or nitrite, definitely report that to a lab coordinator. If unsure how to test or if levels are high, please ask a coordinator for help. Use a turkey baster to clean off live rock. So if you have any live rock in your tank, it's not a bad idea to use. I, I like turkey basters, or you can just kind of wave your hand over the rocks a little bit, and um, just any detritus that's settled in the rock will be kicked up into the water, and you can get that off, get that out of the tank. Uh, your filter can help sweep that up. Use a scrub pad to clean off rock formations that do not consist of live rock. Uh, be careful doing that, but if unsure a rock formation consists of live rock or not, please ask the coordinator before cleaning. Um, you should know if you have live rock in your tank. Check aquarium lights. Make sure If you have lights on your aquarium, uh, make sure that they're working properly, your timer's set properly. Uh, something else you're going to want to look at is temperature. Make sure that the temperature is, most tanks, it's going to be right around 78 degrees. Once a month, change 20% of your tank's water. Use a freshwater tank, a furry freshwater tank, add fresh water to top it off. Change one carbon filter about once a month. You're going to want to change carbon. And when you do, uh, have, have somebody help you the first time you do it. Um, you're going to need to get some carbon from the back room, put it in your bio bag, and rinse it really, 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 really well because it's going to be super dusty and black and you need to get all that dust off of there before adding it to your system. Clean filter parts with vat water or water from your tank. Don't use tap water because it kills your nitrifying bacteria. On to the marine and or saltwater procedures. For saltwater, all right, so when you add water to your tank after doing a test, you're going to want to use salt water. But when you top it off, you want to use fresh water. So the salt water vat nozzle is located on the right side, located next to the testing station. It's going to, it'll be labeled salt water. Every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, wash your hands before touching anything in the tank. Get any soap off. Top off your tank with fresh water or RO water. If you have uh, corals or some sensitive invertebrates, you might be using RO water. And, hope, and uh, hopefully you know who you are. Uh, fresh water vat nozzles on the left side located next to the text testing station. The RO water is in the big trash cans next to the refrigerator. Rinse everything you put in your tank, clean algae off the aquarium glass, clean outside of the aquarium, including the glass, top, surrounding, get rid of any salt creep, even behind your tank, needs to be picked up. You get lots of salt creep, especially if it gets anywhere near any kind of an outlet or a power strip, it can be a fire hazard. That has to be clean. I know it's not easy to get to, 
but you've got to figure out a way to get any salt creep cleaned up on the front, side, back, top, anywhere around your aquarium. Record feeding and testing information on the uh, online. Please report any unusual behavior to a coordinator so that the animal can be monitored or treated immediately if necessary. Once a week, you're going to test pH, ammonia, nitrate, and nitrate levels. So similar procedure. So again, uh, find get some test tubes or vials, rinse them out really well. Don't dip those disgusting vials into your tank, but use a cup, get some water out, pour it into the into the vials, and then follow the instructions for the the testing. Uh, use high range pH for all the saltwater aquariums. Ideally, should be uh, 8.2, maybe a little higher would be nice in some of the coral tanks. Ammonia nitrate, nitrate should be zero. If you do have nitrate, if you have, actually, if you have recorded any of those, talk to your lab coordinators. If you have you record any ammonia or nitrate especially. Nitrate, if you just have a fish-only tank, it may not be a problem. Uh, if you have corals or sensitive invertebrates, it, it could be a problem. So uh, you can talk to your lab coordinator about any of those. Test salinity. So you're going to use a hydrometer or a refractometer. Hopefully you've purchased your own refractometer. You don't want to share those with other people because, I don't know, I don't, I'm not a medical doctor, but I would hate to have eye diseases being transferred around the lab. But uh, there are some for common use, both hydrometers and refractometers. So you can you can use those if you don't have your own. Salinity should, usually it's between about 30 and 35 parts per thousand or roughly 1.025 specific gravity, maybe a little lower. Use a turkey baser to clean off live rock. Use a scrubber pad to clean any rock formations that don't consist of live rock. Uh, let's see. If you're not sure if you have live rock or not, maybe just ask somebody. Clean your protein skimmer if you have one. That should be cleaned. And make sure, smell the cup, the protein skimmer. The skimmate should not smell bad. It should just smell like fresh dirt. If it doesn't, then something is probably wrong. With your tank, let somebody know. Maybe some water changes are in order or some changes, other changes to your system. Check your aquarium lights if you have them. And then again, salt creep. All salt creep's got to be cleaned up. Once a month, do a water change. So change 20% of your tank's water. If salinity is too low, you're going to be adding a little bit of salt to your top off water. Um, if salinity is too high, you're going to want to add take out some salt water and add a little bit of fresh water or, or reverse osmosis water to top it off to help maintain a, a good uh, salinity in your tank. For large systems, use vats that are in trash cans throughout the lab. Make sure you check the salinity first in order to use the vat with the closest salinity as your system. So if you're doing handling massive amounts of water, let's say you're doing a Water change on the shark tank, I'm going to assume that you are not a first semester freshman working in the lab and um, somebody's shown you how to do that. Change one carbon filter at least uh, like once a month. You should be changing some carbon out. 
Uh, again, the carbon's in the back room. Make sure you ask somebody how to do if you don't know how to do that. Rinse the carbon really well. And filter parts, use vat water or water from your tank. Coral systems. An introduction. Corals are exotic and recognizable animals. They come in a variety of colors, shapes, and sizes, allowing a devoted aquarist to design their own tropical reef and bring it to life in their own house. The beauty and grace of these organisms cause them to be a highly sought-after species in the aquarist trade. Yet, they are not beautiful by their own accord. Many people fail to realize that. Without the proper care, a coral will be nothing but a dull, shriveled hulk of flesh and limestone. The goal of this guide is to prepare an aspiring coral caretaker for the many demands of a tropical reef system. Outlining the proper protocol to follow in order to establish and maintain a healthy coral population. So what's coral? Though it many times seems inanimate and as lively as a plant, corals are in fact an animal. It is classified under the phylum Cnidaria, which also includes sea anemones and other stuff. The primary characteristic that puts them in this category is the presence of nematocysts which are specialized stinging cells. Yes, corals can sting. Um, mo the corals that we keep, uh, none of them are going to hurt you. Uh, now, there, some of them might produce some toxins that you would not want to ingest, but the uh, stinging cells are not going to harm you. But uh, you should limit handling or touching corals. Along with anemones, sea pens, and sea pansies, coral is further categorized into the class Anthozoa, this is another group of animals that include the word coral in their name, but they're not true corals. The animals in this group are, are called fire coral and belong to the class Hydrozoa. All corals have a symbiotic relationship with a type of photosynthetic algae in their tissues called zoosanthellae. These algae, which use sunlight and nutrients, mainly nitrates and phosphates, from the coral's body to produce sugars that are in turn used by the coral for energy. From this point, the subclasses and orders get somewhat complicated, so we'll instead begin to talk about the two general types of coral. Hard, we have, so we've broke them into hard coral and soft coral. Hard coral. This group of corals gets its name due to the rigid, permanent skeleton that it builds by absorbing and fixing, fixating dissolved calcium into calcium carbonate. It is this group of corals that establishes the intricate infrastructure that serves as the building block for the diverse community that inhabits tropical reefs worldwide. There are two types of hard coral, the stony corals and the hydrocorals, which are not true corals. So the stony corals. Stony corals are characterized by a calcium carbonate cup called a coralite that surrounds and protects a single polyp. As a typical polyp can vary in size, from less than an inch to a couple of inches in diameter, and larger corals may have thousands of polyps. One can only imagine the large amount of calcium used by this type of coral in order to grow. There are six types of stony corals, branching and pillar corals, encrusting, mound and boulder corals, brain corals, left plate and sheet corals, fleshy corals, and flower and cup corals. So lots of different types of corals, and we have a lot of those different types in the lab. Now your hydrocorals. 
Hydrocorals are massive colonies of calcifying polyps that resemble true corals, yet because they are hydrozones, they are more closely related to sea jellies than corals. This is mainly due to the difference in the dispersal of gametes. During reproduction, instead of releasing their gametes directly into the water like true corals do, the hydrocoral polyp produces sea jelly-like medusa, like jellyfish-looking things, which swim around and release eggs and sperm. Fertilized eggs develop into free-swimming larvae that will eventually settle on the substrate and form new colonies. There are two types of hydrocorals, fire corals and lace corals. Fire corals are known for their powerful stinging nematocysts that can cause an unpleasant rash on unsuspecting divers who may bump into them. Don't touch the fire coral. Lace corals are so named for their intricate lace-like growth pattern and display in low-current environments. Uh, both kinds of corals have two types of polyps, feeding polyps and sensory or stinging polyps. The soft corals. We have a lot of soft corals in the lab. They're easier to keep. So a lot of the projects that we like to do, experimental projects, uh, are going to center around soft corals. So any corals are more difficult to maintain and it's easier to kill them. So we soft, many soft corals are very, very hardy, so we, we like to use those in the lab. This group of corals gets its name due to the absence of the rigid, permanent exterior skeleton that defines a hard coral. They are flexible animals that use the current to filter, feed off of small food particles in the water. Soft corals can be divided into two groups, octocorals and black corals. Octocorals have an internal skeleton made of the protein uh, gorgon, along with spicules of calcium carbonate. The black corals have an internal skeleton made of chitin, like an insect shell. It's made of chitin, a crab shell, and a composite of proteins that give it properties like that of an insect cuticle. Another notable feature of black corals is their adaptation to deep water survival. This means that they have significant decrease in light requirements for survival. Coral husbandry, your water chemistry. So we typically want the salinity to be around 32 to 37 parts per thousand and stable. Whatever you're going to keep it, it should be stable. The specific gravity, so is... and. Um, I can explain the difference between those. Uh, so salinity is the amount of salt in the water, and it's really an estimate. We usually measure that by measuring the specific gravity or how dense the water is. And we can assume that the more dense the water is, the more salt is in the water. So it, it's an estimate. And, but in, in, of course, temperature also affects the density of water, so there's tables you can use so, to, to cross-reference, all right, I got this much, this is my specific gravity reading, here's the temperature, this is roughly my salinity. But whatever that is, make sure it's stable, somewhere between 32 and 37 parts per thousand. Temperature, 75 to 80 degrees, you get much higher than that, you start getting a lot of nuisance algae growth, that's in Fahrenheit, 24 to 27 degrees Celsius, pH should be about 8.1 to 8.5. If you can get it up, you know, a little, if you can get it higher than 8, 8.2 is usually where you'll find it. If you can get it higher than that, that's going to be a little better. So 8.3, 8.4 is not bad. Alkalinity. 
tip in the lab we can measure this carbonate hardness or uh, DKH, which may be about so about eight to twelve DKH or milli equivalents per liter might be two point nine to four point three different unit of measurement. This, but that's roughly where the alkalinity should be. And alkalinity is the buffering capacity of the aquarium that uh, prevents the uh, pH from shifting. Dissolved calcium, you're going to want to maintain about 400 to 450 milligrams per liter. Magnesium should be maintained at 1,250 to 1,350 parts per million. Ammonia zero, nitrite zero, nitrate zero. Specific gravity or salinity. Both these terms can be used interchangeably as described uh, to describe the amount of salt dissolved in the water, which is the defining difference between marine and freshwater organisms. Specific gravity is a ratio of the density of your current water sample to the density of pure freshwater. Dissolving salt into the water will cause it to be denser. Salinity is typically the measure of the number of grams of dry salt in one kilogram of water. Both of these measurements for saltiness can be tested for using either a refractometer or a hydrometer. Salt content is important because corals cells are adapted to living in an environment with a specific amount of dissolved salts. If salinity is too high, their cells will try to equalize by pumping water out, resulting in the, their dehydration. If salinity is too low, their cells will absorb more water and lice or burst. When adjusting the salinity in your system, if the fluctuation is be more than three parts per thousand, do it very slowly. Corals will react more violently to sudden changes than they will to changes over time. In extreme cases, never allow your salinity to exceed 39 parts per thousand or dip below 29 parts per thousand. Though some corals can still thrive in these environments, your more sensitive corals will not. The safest bet is to carefully maintain salinity in the ranges given, as this range is the acceptable range for the majority of corals in the world. But know your animal's requirements. The best way to manage salinity is by maintaining a consistent protocol when topping off systems and performing water changes. Always top off coral systems with reverse osmosis water, or RO water, and top off the systems every other day. For water changes, before removing water from the system, add salt to a vat or RO water until it is mixed and at a constant acceptable salinity. Then use this water to replace an equal volume of the water removed from the system. Temperature. Temperature is an important factor in the survival of corals because it affects the efficiency and functionality of the chemical processes on which they depend. At temperatures above 86 Fahrenheit, 30 Celsius, and below 70 Fahrenheit, 21 Celsius, the photosynthetic pathways in most zooxanthellae become dysfunctional, depriving the coral of its main food source and eventually starving it to death. Roth et al. 2013. Temperature is measured with either a floating thermometer in the aquarium or a sticker thermometer on the outside of the aquarium. The best way to manage temperature is through the use of heaters in the sump. The sump is better than direct placement in the tank because it mitigates 
the presence of hot spots in the habitat itself. When adding a heater to a smaller system, determine how much water needs to be heated and refer to the following wattage table. So know your animal's requirements, but if you have a five-gallon tank, you're going to want... Uh, it's going to take five, uh, 25 watts to heat, um, raise your tank temperature. Uh, onto the pH. One of the most crucial water parameters for coral growth is pH. A recent study found that porites uh, grown at a pH of 7.2 grew half as much as a member of the same species grown at a pH of 8.0. So why is this such an important water parameter? The primary reason for corals' dependence on pH is due to their need to precipitate calcium carbonate from the water to build upon their skeleton. Because the mineral is more soluble in acidic water, the animals have a harder time getting it to precipitate in more acidic water. Measuring pH can be done with a multitude of methods. The primary method used in the marine lab is the use of test kits, which require you to add droplets of a chemical to a five milliliter sample of aquarium water. The best way to manage pH. The best way to manage pH levels is to add buffer to your coral system that stabilizes the pH around 8.2. The two most popular buffers in the industry are sodium bicarbonate and calcium hydroxide. Calcium hydroxide is also known as Kalkwasser, which means lime water in German. The biggest benefit for using this type of buffer is the fact that it includes calcium in its dosage. This means that there doesn't need to be a separate dosing system to reach the required calcium levels in the system. The benefit for using sodium bicarbonate is exactly the opposite. Someone using this buffer is in direct control of how much calcium and alkalinity is being dosed into the system and can directly change the calcium levels with ease. Alkalinity. Alkalinity or the hardness of water is related to pH in the manner that it is a measure of the water's ability to resist negative changes in pH. It is defined as the amount of hydrogen ions required to bring your aquarium's pH down to 4.5. When you're measuring alkalinity, you're measuring the amount of carbonate in the system. This value can be expressed in a variety of units, but the two most popular are DKH, or just KH, and milliequivalents per liter. DKH, which means degrees of carbonate hardness, is a German term and when they use it, it doesn't actually measure alkalinity. However, the term has been repurposed by Americans to mean the same thing as total alkalinity. So it can be treated as the same thing in the Western world. Milliequivalent per liter is actually a more accurate method for describing alkalinity and thus is more commonly used by scientists. It stands for milliequivalents per liter it's usually abbreviated M-E-Q slash L, and represents the millimoles of hydrogen ion protons that can be neutralized by your current solution. 
one millimolar solution of bicarbonate is milliequivalent to one milliequivalent per liter, while one millimolar solution of carbonate is equivalent to two milliequivalents per liter. This is because where bicarbonate can only neutralize one hydrogen ion per molecule, carbonate can neutralize two hydrogen ions per molecule. If you ever need to convert between values, you can obtain milliequivalents per liter by dividing KDH by 2.8. You can also obtain milligrams per liter by multiplying milliequivalents per liter by 50. So sometimes you'll see test kits that it'll be in milligrams per liter. Uh, the best way to manage alkalinity levels is by using a balanced calcium and alkalinity additive system. And where, and there are a, a few ways to achieve this. The primary system used by the Marine Lab is a Kalkwasser drop-off system. Where, or, I'm sorry, Kalkwasser top-off system, where a saturated solution of Kalkwasser is used to replace the amount of water lost to evaporation. Remember that when you do a water change, you'll be removing some of the alkalinity from your chlorine water. That means you need to specifically dose alkalinity after a water change in order to get your levels back to normal, where there are online calculators to help you determine how much alkalinity to add in order to reach the proper levels. Dissolved calcium. This mineral is a key player in the survival and growth of corals carrying equal importance with bicarbonate because these two factors come together to form the central component of the coral skeleton. Calcium carbonate. Too low of calcium levels in the water will not kill the coral, but it will prevent them from growing and flourishing. This being said, these animals can only absorb and use dissolved calcium up to a certain maximum efficiency. After this point, 360 milligrams per liter, their growth rate does not increase with increasing amounts of dissolved calcium. So there's little sense in keeping the levels much higher than that. You might then look at the suggested dissolved calcium concentration and realize that the range is greater than 360 milligrams per liter. This is because having those extra dissolved ions in the water creates a cushion, ensuring that even when some of the calcium is absorbed for growth, the levels will remain at or above optimum levels for coral growth. The best way to maintain dissolved calcium is to set up and maintain a balanced calcium alkalinity additive system, which many aquarists use special substrates that leach calcium into the water to help maintain their calcium levels. Remember that when you do water changes, you'll be removing some of the dissolved calcium from the system. After water change, you must add dissolved calcium back into the system in the form of calcium chloride. There are online calculators that can help you determine how much calcium to add in order to reach the levels. So in the, in the marine lab, we use calcium chloride, sometimes calcium hydroxide, which is calcwasser, which I actually really like calcwasser. I think it's, I, I think it's uh, the ideal, I think it's the best way to add calcium to your system, but not the easiest way. So we use a lot of calcium chloride. Magnesium. 
The purpose of magnesium in an aquarium is to facilitate the interactions between calcium and carbonate. It is use, its use is beneficial in two ways. It mitigates the non-biological precipitation of calcium carbonate by binding to any molecules that have already precipitated and preventing others from building off of them. Second, magnesium can be used as a building agent in the coral skeletal structure, actually enhancing coral calcification and thus increasing their growth. If you're having trouble maintaining proper calcium and alkalinity levels in your system, low magnesium levels might be the culprit. For this reason, though it is technically an optional mineral, magnesium is worth measuring and dosing, and we do measure and dose that in our reef tanks. The best way to maintain magnesium levels is through basic supplementation, creating a concentrated solution of magnesium uh, in reverse osmosis or deionized water and using it to dose your system when magnesium levels need to be augmented. As with calcium and alkalinity levels, water changes will remove magnesium from your system, so it is necessary to add magnesium after every water change. There are also online calculators to help you determine how much magnesium you need to add. Ammonia. Ammonia is excreted by all animals through their waste. Thus, with fish constantly eating and expelling waste, it can be expected that there will always be some flow of ammonia into your system. Though it is very toxic to all animals, ammonia is consumed by macroalgae as nutrient for growth and convert converted to nitrate. Actually, that's not in the microalgae. It should be, uh, and as nitrogen gas by bacteria. Uh, this conversion is also known as the nitrogen cycle and is the primary reason for these three compounds are linked in the aquatic systems. If your ammonia levels are high, your nitrate and nitrate levels are sure to follow. Ammonia levels as low as 0.2 parts per million are dangerous for fish, making this one of the most important things to test for in any aquarium. The best way to maintain ammonia le uh, levels is by minimizing decomposition in your aquarium. This means you need to monitor how much you feed your animals and make sure that they eat everything given to them. If they don't, you need to remove any leftover food. Keep track of your organisms. If something dies, remove it from the system immediately. The longer it is left in the water, the more ammonia will accumulate and potentially harm your other organisms. If you notice a spike in ammonia levels, look for causes of decomposition in the system and perform a water change immediately. Nitrate. Nitrate is one of the mo uh, main issues that an aquarist deals with uh, in an aquarium. Though this ion is not particularly toxic to most aquarium inhabitants, it stimulates the growth of algae, which can cause all kinds of headaches in a reef aquarium. In a reef aquarium, algae can cause damage beyond that of the visual disruption. It can grow on or around corals and limit their light source, preventing their zooxanthellae from producing sugars and eventually starving the corals. The best way to maintain nitrate levels is through protein skimming 
water changes, or the addition of macroalgae to the system. Protein skimming is sometimes uh, is something that should be done on the system anyways. So even if you're not having nitrate problems, there should be a protein skimmer processing your reef aquarium water. Now, not everybody's going to agree with that, but I'm a big fan of the protein skimmers. You should use them. Buy the biggest one you can afford. Put it on your tank. If you have salt water, if you have fresh water, it won't work. Water changes are a plausible solution to nitrate levels. But remember that in a reef system, water changes are more expensive ordeals than in a freshwater system due to the necessity of dosing after each new addition of water. The preferred method for algae reduce, reduction is through the addition of fast-growing macroalgae to your system. Macroalgae are basically plants, but they're actually technically protists, for your aquarium, and they come in many shapes and sizes. The reason they help mitigate nitrate levels is because, like the algae we were trying to get rid of, they use nitrates to benefit their growth. Because they are fast-growing, they will outcompete the unwanted algae for these resources and stun its growth. That's what we do in the marine lab. We have in our sumps, we have a refugium, and we use lots and lots of, uh, I like calerpa. Um, well, I used to like calerpa, and now it's not calerpa. Now we use catamorphia, but, uh, but adding algaes to your system will help sop up some of those nitrates and phosphates that you don't want in the tank, and it'll help out compete those microalgaes and nuisance hair algaes and stuff. All right, nitrite. This ion is a fearful one for freshwater aquariums. There are freshwater fish that will die at nitrate levels of one part per million. So they can get brown blood disease. For this reason, many aquarists translate this fear of toxicity to their maintenance of marine aquariums. But they fail to realize that nitrite is less of a problem for marine organisms than freshwater ones. Nitrate is toxic to freshwater fish because it is, a, it is absorbed through their gills in the place of chloride, reducing the overall chloride levels in their body and thus causing damage to those bodily processes that require it. Yet, where freshwater has a typical chloride concentration of 1 to 100 parts per million, saltwater has an average chloride concentration of over 19,000 parts per million. Since chloride is more readily available for saltwater fish, they have no problems absorbing it in any amount. Still, it is good to keep an eye on them, as nitrate levels are indicators of unwanted excessive progression throughout the nitrogen cycle in your system. If you're testing positive for nitrites in your system, you should be worrying more about nitrate and ammonia levels as they are the predecessors to nitrite in the nitrogen cycle. Feeding. The animals in the lab normally are normally fed Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. However, some animals require feeding every day. Feeding may occur between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. If you cannot come into the lab between these times, please inform the closing coordinator that you are coming in late. Only feed as much as the animal will eat within a minute of time. In fact, uh, you should stand there and watch them eat.
If there's extra food left in the aquarium, please remove them with a net. Uh, if it's not removed, the excess food may cause spikes in ammonia, nitrites, and nitrates. Live food provides good nutrition and keeps animals interested in eating. Frozen, frozen food is also available in the freezer. Uh, make sure that you thaw any frozen food that you use with cold water. Don't use hot water. It'll make it nasty and disgusting and cook it. And put the food into the proper sizes for ingestion so that they, the, the animal can actually eat it. Dry food can be found at the dry food station next to the shark tank. Feed your animals after testing water quality, but before doing any water changes. If your tank contains invertebrates and vertebrates, feed the vertebrates first, as they may steal food from the invertebrates. Vary the diet of your animals, so mix it up. Um, don't just give them the same flake food every day. Give half of an iodine pill to each bamboo shark once a month. This can be done by placing half of a pill inside of piece of pollock or squid it's easier with squid um i think but uh we've had success with both um and that's to prevent the sharks from getting uh goiter so it's a uh, iodine de- uh, nutrition de- uh, iodine deficiency will cause goiter in your sharks feeding particular animals small fish such as damsels chromis confish etc. are fed by dropping very small bits of food on the surface of the water. Diet may include live brine shrimp, frozen plankton, flake food, small pieces of frozen fish. It's important to feed a variety of foods to ensure the exposure to a wide range of vitamins and nutrients. Large fish, uh, pakus, piranhas, oscars, sharks, are fed larger pieces of food and that's going to depend upon their jaw size. So they will also eat live feeder fish if available. We don't usually have those, but sometimes it, it, that may be the case. Eels prefer to eat mainly frozen squid or pollock. Uh, they'll also eat live feeders if available. Use tongs to feed the eels for safety reasons. Don't just try to feed them by hand. <laughs> Crabs. They're scavengers, so they'll eat about anything. But uh, they'll eat small pieces of frozen fish. Uh, If you just put a little piece of fish or squid or about anything right next to them, be quick because they will fight over a piece of food. And wait, stand there and wait and watch them eat the whole thing. Um, Sea urchins and sea stars are both in the phylum Echinodermata. They are fed by picking up each animal and placing food under their mouth area. Urchins will take food given to them anywhere on their body, and then they'll use their tube feet and move it around to their mouth. They will move it to their mouths uh, with their tube feet. If they are omnivores and will eat frozen fish or plant material, conoderms also ingest some algae off of the gravel and glass in the aquarium. Sea anemones. Sea anemones have tentacles containing nematocyst stinging cells although it will not hurt you they have the ability to capture and eat small fish some species of anemones have symbiotic associations with clowns clownfish in the pacific ocean sea anemones will eat almost anything however it's best to feed them small pieces of frozen and thawed fish or very small amounts of brine shrimp 
place the food on or near their tentacles. The anemones will draw the food to its mouth located in the center of the ring of the tentacles. Uh, they'll, they'll probably eat little bits of coral food too if you want to try that. Or blood worms or other frozen and thawed uh, foods. Corals and anemones. There's a little need to feed corals and anemones due to their ability to use, utilize sunlight in the production of energy. Uh, they, pro they probably get at least 70% of their nutrition from zooxanthellae and just the through the sunlight. Um, it doesn't hurt to try feeding them a little bit. So, But they also feed at night by using their tentacles to capture zooplankton. You can add live plankton or very small amounts of brine shrimp. Warning, both of these can pollute the water very quickly and if they used and if used regularly uh, they will promote slime algae growth in the tank so uh, make sure you know what you're doing before you start adding lots of food for your corals and anemones um, also we have coral food in the lab specifically for corals and that's actually what I recommend if you're going to feed those guys tank maintenance Tank maintenance consists of running chemical tests on water quality, vacuuming the gravel or sand substrate, cleaning algae off the rocks and glass, as well as upkeep of general appearance. Chemical tests on water quality are done once every week for ammonia, nitrite, and nitrate. Salinity and pH are also monitored closely. Tests are done by using drops. Instructions for drops are posted directly on the testing stations. Water quality tests. So we've got pH, ammonia, nitrite, nitrate. PH is important in your tank since animal respiration can make the closed system become more acidic. So carbon dioxide and seawater react to form carbonic acid. Measuring the pH is quite simple with a pH meter, but they need to be calibrated often due to the tendency to drift up, giving a higher reading than they should. When using a pH meter, rinse with distilled water before and after testing. Also, be sure that the probes always stay moist with either pH 7 calibrating solution or distilled water. pH should be maintained at 8.2 in the marine aquarium and around 7 for fresh water, depending on species. If your pH is too low, your system can be buffered with sodium bicarbonate. If your pH is too low, please inform a coordinator immediately. If your pH is off, let somebody know. They can adjust it for you. Ammonia. Ammonia is a major waste product excreted by marine organisms and will become toxic if high levels are reached within a closed system. Ammonia is a result of decaying food, waste, and dead animals left in the aquarium. To combat this problem, biological filtration units are included in the aquarium setup. Biological filters provide surface area for nitrifying bacteria to grow. One type of nitrifying bacteria is called nitrosomonas and will digest ammonia to convert it to nitrite. If ammonia levels become too high, you must change 20% of your water, your aquarium water immediately and should be monitored closely until an acceptable level is reached. If ammonia continues to be high, please consult a coordinator right away. Nitrite, or NO2. Nitrite is the nitrogenous product of bacterial conversions of ammonia mentioned above. Although less toxic than ammonia, High levels of nitrite may prevent oxygen from binding to the hemoglobin in the blood of your fish. 
Nitrite poisoning is also called brown blood disease because the fish's blood turns brown as it suffocates. Nitrifying bacteria called nitrobacter converts the nitrite to nitrate. If nitrite levels become too high, you must change 20% of your aquarium immediately and should be monitored closely until an acceptable level is reached. If nitrate continues to be high, please consult a lab coordinator right away. Nitrate, or NO3. Nitrate is generally considered non-toxic to vertebrates. However, invertebrates require special systems designed to eliminate nitrate. In nature, processes of denitrification by anaerobic bacteria can break down this nitrogenous compound, but in the closed systems, it accumulates until you remove it with water change. Do not be concerned if your nitrates are testing off the scale. This is normal if you have an undergravel filter. If nitrate levels become too high, you must change 20% of your aquarium immediately and you should be monitored closely uh, if, until it's uh, an acceptable level of its reach. If nitrate continues to be high, please consult coordinator. Um, don't freak out if your nitrates are high. Just talk to your lab coordinator and make sure that the animals that you have are going to be okay with that level of nitrate. Filtration. The filtration system is critical for the survival of your organisms. There are many different types of filters that you may find in your aquarium. Undergravel filter. This is one of the best, in my opinion, one of the best filters and very simple, easy to maintain. We used to have them in all the tanks long ago. A coordinator ripped all of them out of every single one of our tanks because this person did not like undergrowth filters, and so now we don't have any. And I did not want to put them all back. But uh, these consist of a plate under your gravel and a series of one-inch wide uplift tubes raising from under the gravel to the top of your tank and an airline, an air stone, inserted into the tube. This filter turns your gravel bed into a biological filter by drawing water down through the gravel bed and up and out the top of the lip uplift tubes. Each piece of gravel becomes covered with nitrifying bacteria. These filters are very stable and reliable. However, they will produce copious amounts of nitrate. When you siphon water out of your tank, do not siphon all the sludge out from underneath the filter plate. The sludge makes your tank stable by feeding a large culture of nitrifying bacteria. Power filters. If you have a power filter probably hanging on the back of your tank, uh, you'll see a box hanging off the back of your aquarium. The filter has two functions. First, it provides mechanical filtration by screening the water through a filter bag to remove detritus or waste. Second, it provides chemical filtration by pushing water through a bed of activated carbon. Sometimes we'll use uh, zeolite instead. It's like a little white rocks instead of the little black rocks. But carbon will absorb ammonia, nitrate, phosphate, heavy metal, and other impurities. You don't want your in your closed system. Some power filters will also provide a bio wheel or a sponge or some other form of biological filtration. So it's just surface area for nitrifying bacteria to grow on. Never clean filter parts with tap water. The chlorine will kill nitrifying bacteria. Instead, use vat water or water from your tank while doing a water change. Protein skimmers. Um, again, I think that protein skimmers are 
Very, very important piece of filtration equipment. If you have a saltwater tank, they won't work on a freshwater tank, so you typically will not see them on a freshwater tank. But a protein skimmer is a four to six inch or bigger tube hanging from the back of your aquarium or down in the sump underneath your tank with a collection cup on top of it. Proteins, as well as many other things, are skimmed from the water and collected in the cup as dry foam. This cup will need to be emptied regularly, although there may be an airline attached to the skimmer or the if or the pump that runs the skimmer. This airline will become encrusted with salt and needs to be cleaned every week. Make sure that there's air flowing through the airline. Canister filter. Compared to filters that hang on the back of your system, canister filters offer a larger quantity of materials that are used for filtration with a greater degree of flexibility with respect to which filter material to choose from. The water from the aquarium enters the canister through an intake pipe and at the top of the canister, passes through the filter media and is fed back to the aquarium through the return pipe that is located on the top of the canister. The water is forced to circulate through the filter by a pump that is typically located at the top of the canister. Benefits of a canister filter are that they provide a high volume of filter material without reducing the internal space within the aquarium and that they can be disconnected from the aquarium for cleaning, maintaining, and replaced without ever disturbing the inside of an aquarium or the aquarium components. I personally do not like canister filters. I think they're a pain, but um, some people love them. So they're out there, and we have a few in the lab. General aquarium maintenance. Keeping your tank clean is important for the general health of your animals and because multiple tour groups visit the lab every day. Take pride in your tank and how you take care of it. Vacuuming substrate. After a period of time, detritus may accumulate on the bottom of your tank along the gravel via undergravel filtration and gravity. Although this detritus is unsightly, there's no real cause for concern. You should siphon any loose detritus that is settled on top of the gravel. But don't push the, the siphon all the way through the gravel and get all the sludge from underneath the undergravel filter plate. Algae. Algae may grow in the glass decorations and substrate in your tank. When algae is not aesthetically pleasing, mo uh, while it's not aesthetically pleasing, most kinds are not harmful to your animals. However, they are unsightly and should be cleaned on a regular basis. If your tank is experiencing algae overgrowth, ask a coordinator about what to do. In saltwater aquariums, the only algae that is considered useful or desirable is the purple and red coralline algae that adheres to the aquarium's sides and live rocks. So leave that stuff alone. Coralline algae prevents or slows the growth of other less desirable algae types. Make sure to get rid of other algae types because they can be harmful to the animals in your aquarium. Um, unless you have macroalgae that you're intentionally keeping. Slime algae. If you have a red or black slime algae, you have problems with your water quality. Red slime is a fast-growing is a fast-growing cyanobacterium that can overtake your aquarium in a hurry. If you notice it, notify a coordinator, then begin doing small water changes three times a week.
like 10% maybe, up to 20%. You should also check to make sure your filters are running properly as well and increase circulation in your tank. Maybe check your protein skimmer, make sure it's working properly. Maybe add a power head. Do more water changes. Um, feed a little bit less. Salt creep. Salt creep will end up everywhere. You must keep it cleaned up. If you clean a little every time you come in, it'll never turn into a big job. However, if you let it go, it can get pretty messy, especially behind the tank. Not only does salt creep look bad, but it is also very corrosive and electrically conductive. Use a razor blade if you need and return as much of the salt back into the tank if you want. Uh, you don't have to do that, but you can, you can. Just make sure that any salt you add back to the tank doesn't land on some sensitive invertebrates, like a sea anemone or something. Topping off. Your aquarium water will evaporate. However, the salt does not evaporate with the water. This means that your salinity will be increasing as your water level decreases. When your water level becomes low, top off your aquarium with fresh water or RO water for a saltwater tank, and top off with fresh water... For a freshwater tank, cleaning suggestions. Do a little cleaning each day to keep from stressing out your animals. Use the green and white scrubber pads to clean glass tanks. While scrubber pads only should be used, so the white scrubber pads should only be used on acrylic tanks. Make sure that it's designed for acrylic, and they're usually white. Uh, it'll the, uh, the, the normal ones will severely scratch up your acrylic tank. If you are Unsure if your tank is glass or acrylic, please ask a coordinator before cleaning. Airlift tubes can be cleaned with long-handled bottle brushes. Tank decorations can be scrubbed with a green or white scrubber pad. Uh, but don't scrub your live rock. Aquascaping. There's no strict guidelines for how you should decorate your tank, but you should aim for good taste and common sense. Try to make your aquarium appear as natural as possible. This will improve both aesthetics as well as being and the well-being of your animals. You should also be careful not to add too many decorations as they may impede the functioning of your undergravel filter. And in my experience, uh, usually the it actually looks the best if the substrate is a little bit lower in the front and slopes up and it's a little bit higher in the back. Um, it actually it just looks a little nicer, but that's up to you. Data entry. Data needs to be written on your clipboard or entered into the computer every time you come into the lab. It is important to keep an accurate account of the history of your organisms and tank regarding observation, observations such as chemical, physical, behavioral, etc. Records also help to monitor animals' behavior to ensure that they get treated as soon as they display unusual behavior. So please, please, please keep very, very good records. I look at those. Um, we have, we're inspected regularly by the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee. They look at those. And there may be other governing bodies that may be interested in seeing those records. So please, to prevent problems, keep very, very good records of your aquarium. Tours. Tours are an important part of the marine laboratory. Tours are given to students of all ages, prospective freshmen, and to anyone with an interest in marine life. The tours help generate interest in the marine lab and further its mission to educate about ocean life. Your main incentive for doing the tours is to prepare yourself for internships and introductory level jobs as an educator in, the, in marine biology or uh, 
many jobs that you may be applying for when you graduate may uh, incorporate some sort of an informal education um, outreach component. These jobs are the easiest to get and will open the most doors for you in the future. And we can ha- in the lab we can handle groups up to 120. It's chaotic, but we can do it using different schedules. Ideally, 20 in the lab at a time. Uh, really, we couldn't ha- we can handle about 30 in the lab at a time. Beyond that, then we have to start breaking up into smaller groups and sending them to do different things um, and have them rotate through the marine lab. To run a tour successfully, before the semester starts, a list of people willing and interested in doing tours should be composed. Make sure to add the students from the tours class to the list. When Then compose a list of names, emails, and phone numbers in order to inform the students when tours are going to happen. Volunteers should show up 15 to 20 minutes early to go over information and to pick up the marine lab before the tours. When volunteers arrive, assign tanks to them. For large tour groups, assign group leaders that will show the marine lab to smaller groups of about four to six people in each group after larger tour groups get divided. Um, five people, five, six people, if you have groups larger than that and you're trying to give them an, in, an individualized tour, people won't be able to hear you. Um, so they need to be small. For smaller tour groups, have the visitors explore on their own and have volunteers stationed throughout the marine lab to help with questions. After tasks have been assigned, put all personal belongings in the back room. There should be no food in the lab as well. Place artifacts of your liking on the front table to be viewed. So like dolphins, skulls, and shark teeth and that kind of stuff. When the tour group arrives, divide the group into subgroups if needed. Take turns looking at the artifacts, touch tank, other aquariums throughout the lab. If the group is small, start at the touch tank and let the group explore afterwards. If After the tour is finished, place artifacts back into the display case and clean up. If the tour is an evening tour, then lock the lab when finished. The uh, touch tank's kind of the central point of the lab, and that's where most groups will end up. So, tour guide tips. So, welcome the visitors to BGSU. Um, Give them a quick rundown of the rules. So, ask them, hey, please be quiet in the halls. No running. Floors might be wet. Do not tap on the aquarium glass. Sound and vibration of tapping will cause stress for the animals. Only handle the animals that are selected by lab coordinators. Just stick your hand in random tanks. Don't grab the tails of reptiles or horseshoe crabs. Be very, very gentle. And that goes for you. If you're going to pick up a horseshoe crab, don't pick it up by its tail. You'll damage it. Be gentle. Um, Don't just rip starfish off of the glass or off of a rock or or sea urchins. You'll tear their tube feet. Be very, very careful and tease them off and make sure you know how to do that before trying to do it. Uh, Have somebody show you how to do it. Make sure you introduce yourself. Tell them who you are, maybe what your major is, what you want to do when you graduate. You can talk about the biology department if you want. Say that, you know, the life science building has five floors and it's got labs and classrooms. There's a herpetarium or herpetology lab on the first floor, marine lab on the second floor, and so forth. There's the electron microscope on the fifth floor. We also have a greenhouse across the street. There's a planetarium right next door. So you can give them a little bit of history of the marine lab. Uh, 
but most groups are just going to want to just start walking and looking around and getting an idea of what uh, what we have. But you can also, you know, say that the lab was established in 1962 by Cindy Stong and the lab student run. And we have a, a over a few, somewhere between 40 and 60 aquariums, fresh and salt water. We have invertebrates. We have fish from all over the world. Um, you can mention the Marine Biology Association and the student organization and some of their activities. Uh, some frequently asked questions people might ask you, you know, what do you want to do after you graduate? Or are you in the Marine Biology program? Or what kinds of internships have you participated in? Or do you like the Marine Biology program? And Or what year are you? Are you freshman, junior, sophomore? What are you? Uh, questions for you to ask the visitors. Um, does anyone have an aquarium? Is anyone interested in marine biology? Has anyone been to the ocean? What grade are you in? What's your favorite marine organism? Did you enjoy your visit to BGSU? You will be shocked at how much these kids know about marine biology. A lot of them watch Discovery Channel or whatever, and they know, or just YouTube, and they know huge amounts about marine organisms. You will be very surprised if you just start asking them questions. All right, so that pretty much sums it up. Here's an example of a salinity chart, a um, couple appendices here. So in this salinity chart, you can see um, they, for example, if you test your water temperature and you figure out it's 74 degrees, and then I measure the specific gravity or how dense the water is with a hydrometer, and let's say it's 1.027, then I can calculate that my water, the that the salinity is 37.2. Um, if the temperature was 80, let's say 87 is high, let's say it's 80 degrees in that tank, and the specific gravity is 1.027, then I can say, let's see here, 80 degrees Fahrenheit, go over to 38.5 would be my salinity. Uh, simple diagram of the nitrogen cycle. So fish and fish waste will produce ammonia, which is converted by uh, bacterial oxidation to nitrosomonas. Uh, a bacteria called nitrosomonas will convert it to nitrite. And nitrite is converted by nitrobacter into nitrate. And that's about the end of it in your aquarium, unless you have live rock or in other ways or plant uh, algaes and or plants, something in your aquarium to help remove the nitrates. That's the dead end, and you need to do water changes. Out in the real world, um, it'll uh, continue. Plants will take it up, and and there's in other things, it's more complex. Looks uh, a lot more complex. But in your aquarium, you need to do water changes to get rid of that nitrate. So, I. Uh, it takes about a month to cycle an aquarium. So you set it up and the day one, you put in a couple fish in your tank, not a lot. If you put in too much fish, the ammonia spike is going to be so high it'll kill all your animals. So it'll start out really low and then that ammonia will start to increase. And then your nitrosomonas will begin to convert that ammonia to nitrite. Which So the ammonia levels will go down as that ammonia is converted to nitrite, and that'll go up. And then that nitrite is converted to nitrate by the nitrobacter. So 
the nitrate the nitrite will go down as the levels of nitrate nitrate increase and they'll keep going up and 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 they'll keep going up in most aquariums until you do a water change and remove that and then they'll keep going up and then you'll do another water change and remove it so that is the nitrogen cycle and that is the end of the BGSU marine laboratory guide any questions you can email me <laughs>